Welcome to the teaching ministry of pastors Carl and Cheryl Thomas. Our favorite verse is Habakkuk 2.14, where the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Consumed by that revelation, we are committed to recognizing, resourcing, and releasing high-impact ministries resulting in global glory, transforming lives to impact their world. We have a teaching that will impact you today. Now, let's get right into that word. Well, thanks, guys. Who'd have thunk you'd come to church and hear about bingo and tailgating, eh? Wow. <laughs> and uh, who's ever been to one of our picnics before? Yeah, I promise you the splash part is not the water in the river or the lake there. That stuff is nasty. We'll, we'll bring our own water. I think. Something like that. All right, so we're going to... Uh, we're going to carry on from last week. We're doing the Jesus trip, as you know. If you're new here, we've, as a church, we're going through the Bible in 365 days. There's a chronological Bible. You can pick one up in the library. And it uh, yeah, just breaks down the reading of the whole Bible in chronological order, a couple chapters a day, 10, 15 minutes. If for some reason you're behind in your reading, that's okay. Just jump in. I mean, you can catch up, I guess, but it uh, depends on where you're starting. I would just jump in from wherever you are, jump in today, jump in from yesterday. But uh, so we're doing this trip. We're, we're going together. We're looking through the Bible, and we're doing it on purpose to find Jesus. We're looking to see Jesus in the Old Testament because he's all over the place, right? At the beginning of the year, Pastor Carl preached a, a sermon about how the, the guys on the, I think it was the road to Emmaus, they're, uh, they're walking away from their destiny. They're, they're, you know, all the events that happened around Jesus' death and resurrection, or the, the death anyways, they hadn't been raised up yet. Well, I guess he had, but they didn't know that. So they're like, wow, we were, we were following this God man and everything was great. And then they just started walking away from Jerusalem. They started walking away from destiny, from, from a life lived with Jesus, because they thought it was all over. So Jesus catches up to them, and he tells them, and he explains to them out of the Old Testament all the places that you could find him in the Old Testament. And the result is these guys just get so radically transformed that they get transitioned back into a life of destiny and purpose because they found Jesus in the Scriptures. There's tons of stuff you can find in the Bible, but I'm telling you, look for him. He is the living Word. So that's what we're doing. And last week, we looked at the life of David, Pastor Carl gave us what he called a shotgun blast of some of the events in David's life. And we looked at uh, what made David so special. Because he's, he's a pretty central figure in the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he's actually got this interesting title, A Man After God's Own Heart. That's amazing, eh? In the Old Testament, there's a guy who's called a man after God's own heart. And I really think it is like, like Henry's talking about. David lived with an absolutely ridiculous revelation of how much God loved him. He just knew he was loved by God. And he knew that because of the love of God, he could do things that other people didn't believe they could do. So he got to, he got to get away with stuff that no one else could for no reason other than he believed that God loved him and wanted him to be able to experience him. All he did was just know, God loves me, oh my goodness, and that means that I can X, Y, and Z. What an amazing way to live life, Right? So we looked at this, and we looked at some of David's, the highs and lows in his life, because he had some great highs, but he also had some pretty bad lows, like the affair that he had with Bathsheba. He ended up murdering her husband, covering it up. It's pretty low. We heard about how he was a pretty poor father for a while anyways. He turned it around with Solomon. But uh, I, I love that the Bible, it's not, uh, it's not afraid to talk about people's faults. It's not afraid to talk about how people got things wrong. It's really, really real. And I really like that. Because you know what? It's all about grace anyways. So we don't look at the Bible and like, wow, look at how messed up these people are. Look at how gracious our God is. He took some of these messed up people and he did something beautiful out of their lives. So we looked at some of the pains that David caused and some of the pains that he experienced. Now, he certainly caused a lot of pain, but he also experienced some too. He, uh, he was betrayed by his son Absalom, who tried to take over his kingdom. He was betrayed by his closest advisor, Ahithophel. I think I said that right. Ahithophel, who uh, he, he defected. He left David's reign when he found out about David and Bathsheba. And then when he heard that Absalom, David's son, wanted to try and oust him, he's like, I'll have some of that. He was so bitter and so wounded inside that David's closest advisor says, you know what? I'm going to bring this sucker down, and I'm going to use his son to do it. That's pretty... That's a backstab. 
That's some pretty harsh stuff. And, and David learns about this, funnily enough, he learns about this betrayal at the Mount of Olives in Gethsemane, the same place where Jesus would be betrayed, the same place where he experienced the betrayal by the kiss of Judas. And then Paul, he says in the communion, I, I love what Stephen read there, he says, the things that I received from Jesus about communion, I'm passing it on to you. So what he says, Jesus told Paul, and Paul says, the Lord Jesus said to me, basically, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. So Jesus, like in this, like in an eternal memorial of the words of communion in the scriptures, Jesus has put it so that we know and we understand that communion is not just about our, you know, our spirits being saved and us going to heaven. It's not just for the healing of our bodies, but there's healing for the emotional wounds of betrayal and every other kind. On the night he was betrayed, he took bread. There's healing at the table for all sorts of internal stuff. See, Jesus was the one who was anointed with the Spirit to bind up the brokenhearted. After all that, we looked at David, and he had this amazing promise, too, that somebody from his family, the family of this guy who was such a mess up, and oddly enough, so bad at family, but somebody from his family was going to sit on the throne forever and ever. Another just amazing testimony to the grace and the goodness of God. It's just absolutely amazing stuff. So that's kind of David's life in a nutshell that we looked at last week. But today we're going to look at something about David, the end of David's life, when he's, uh, he's transitioning, like we heard, from his reign to Solomon's. Because I really believe that transition, there's a, there's, a, there's a transition that we can all make. There's always a perpetual invitation. There's always a perpetual now moment to transition out of something and into something else. See, the Holy Spirit, uh, he, the river of life, Right? We've got rivers of living water inside of us, not, not stagnant pools. God's always doing something. He's always moving us somewhere and moving us on. We're not just sitting still. So there's always a, one transition to the next to the next. And what I want to talk a little bit about today is about transition. But when I talk about transition, I want you to understand, I'm not saying, although we're going to look at say, uh, David and Solomon's life, and we're looking at transitioning from one person to the next, I don't want you to think about it in those terms today. I want you to see David as representing something, Solomon as representing something else, and I'll explain that a little bit as we get going. But don't sit there and think about, all right, it's time to transition, praise Jesus, that means this person's getting transitioned out of my life. Don't think that. Even if you can name a couple people, don't, don't do it. And uh, I mean, God might be speaking to you and saying some cool stuff to you, but uh, I'm also not trying to say that God's going to transition you from one life circumstance right now to the next. What I'm actually talking about is, is a process or a period of changing from one state or condition to another. And we'll, uh, we'll define that a little bit as we get going. But the important thing to remember is types and shadows in the Old Testament, the, the types and shadows that we're going to look at today between David's kingdom and Solomon's kingdom, types and shadows, they're just that. They're types and shadows. So sometimes when you read the Old Testament, you've got to be a little bit careful that you're not trying to extract the, the most amazing pieces of detail out of every single story because they're types and shadows. And types and shadows are good, but shadows, all they do is let me know that there's something of substance behind. It's casting a shadow, right? So that's why it's good to have the filter and the lens of, how does this point me to Jesus? It might not be an exact roadmap for your life, but it's, good. it's there to say, wow, okay, I see the shadow. And when you look back, the shadow, the, the substance of what you're always seeing is Jesus Christ. All right. So we're transitioning from David's life to Solomon's life. David's kingdom to Solomon's kingdom. And the thing is, at the end of David's life, I think he's, he's taken stock of a few things. And as we heard again from Henry, I think he's like, you know what? I've got one big dream, one big goal in my life yet. And I haven't, I haven't seen it come to pass yet. I think he, he's, he's thinking about these things, and he's thinking, wow, you know, there's something I want to do, something that God's put in my heart. There's a dream that I have, but I've yet to be able to fulfill it. And I think the dream that David had, the thing that really motivated him was to build a temple for God. See, David's the kind of guy, he says things like this, the one thing I ask of the Lord, the thing I seek the most is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. I think David had a real passion for the house of God. He had a real passion for the presence of God. He, he, he was the kind of guy who said things like, my heart and my flesh, they cry out for the living God. I mean, he, he got so used to and so accustomed to being in the presence of God that he's like, my body is having a reaction. Caitlin's up here. I'm still shaking. You know, you can encounter God. You can live out of constant, continual experience with him. 
You really can. And David did. And so he has this passion that he wants to build uh, this, this temple for God. And I think it was a dream of his left unfulfilled in his life. And he's starting to think about these things as he's thinking about transitioning to his son. So we heard about how David, he'd already created this tent, right? He, he brought the, the ark and he put up this little tent around it. And, and one of the beautiful features of this tent, the tabernacle of David, was that anybody could come. So as we've been reading, we saw the tabernacle, and we saw all the, the rules and the regulations and who can come and who can go and who can do this and who can do that. But David's tabernacle, he's like, you know what? There it is. There's the presence of God. There's just a little sheet over top of it. And if you want to go see and experience the glory and the presence of God, you're absolutely welcome. You can just walk right in. So he set up this place to not only be able to experience God himself, but I think because he wanted everybody else to. But it's a tent. It's a tiny little tent, right? I, I mean, there's, there's big tents, but I, I don't think it was. I think it was just a couple sticks and maybe a big sheet thrown over or something like that, right? Something not very big. And deep down, I think that this kind of bothered David. I think he, he loved that, that he'd created this space. He, he was walking in an amazing revelation. He was like, yes, we can all go do this. We can all come. Everybody, come on. But I mean, the seating was limited, tiny capacity, and I think in his heart of hearts, he's like, I want to see something big, mighty, and glorious for my God. I, I just think that was his thoughts. And, and uh, 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 to 2, he, uh, he says, When David was settled in the palace, that, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king summoned Nathan the prophet, and he said, he said to Nathan, Hey, look, I'm living in a beautiful cedar palace, but God's out there in a tent. You can probably hear the, the, the discontent with that. He's kind of like, this isn't quite right. I've got a beautiful place to live. Eh, he's just out there in a tent. It's beautiful. I love that people can come, but I want to do something a little bit bigger, a little bit grander. I want more seats. I want a bigger building so more people can come and experience him. Something like that, right? So uh, he's telling this to Nathan. Nathan the prophet is like, great. I got a word for you, David. The Lord's with you and go and do whatever's in your heart to do. David's probably pretty excited. Yeah, woo, I'm going to go do this. I'm finally going to realize the dream in my life. I'm finally going to go get to build this house. I've got all the plans. I can't wait to get involved. Can't wait to do this. But then interestingly, the Lord intervenes, and he gives Nathan a new word for David. And through Nathan the prophet, the Lord says, David, no, it's not going to be you. You're not going to be the one to build my house. It's going to be one of your descendants. It's going to be one of your offspring. He's going to be the one that builds my house. So in other words, this is just my paraphrase. It's like the Lord saying to David, actually, David, you know what? I love your dream. I'm going to honor it. I put that in your heart. It's going to come to pass. It really is. I love the dreams I've put in you. But you know what? We've got to transition some things first. There's just a couple things that need to shift. I think that's what God says to, to a lot of people. I think that's what God says to a lot of us. I think that's what God says to a lot, of, uh, a lot of the church right now. The dreams, the desires, the things that have been put in your heart, I put them there. I really did. That thing you're dreaming for, that thing you've been believing for for a long time, that thing that you want to see come into manifestation, I do too. I put that desire in your heart. I really do. I honor it, and it is going to come to pass. But first, we're going to transition just a few things. So that's what we're going to talk about for the rest. Now, the funny thing is here, in times of transition, when transition happens, first God speaks to Nathan, and Nathan's like, yes, go for it. And then he says, actually, no, 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 stop, stop. Tell him not to do it. He's not going to get to do that. So it's like, Nathan, are you okay? Are, 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 you, are you confused? Are you hearing God properly? And I think he is, but I think here, here's one of the, the keys. Here's, here's something about transition, and this is why it's so important. You know, it says in the Bible that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out the mouth of God. God's constantly speaking. He's always talking. And if we're trying to live off of a word that he gave us like two or three years ago to the neglect of what he's speaking to us now, we're not going to be able to be fully present with him in the moment. It's not that he's not here with us. It's not that he's not blessing us. It's not that he's not fully here. It's we're kind of like, I'm not listening to you speak to me, God, because you spoke to me yesterday. It doesn't quite work, right? So in times of transition, there's a word. The words you heard in the past, it's no longer the word that you need now. There's a new word. There's constantly a new word coming 
And there's a new relationship, a new orientation to the word of God that comes to you in times of transition. That's kind of like what we've been doing with the Jesus trip. We're, we're, we're experiencing a new, uh, a new orientation, a new relationship to the word of God. We're, we're experiencing encounters with the living word through our experience together in the written word. There's a new relationship and a new orientation to the word. And you know what? Things are shifting. Things are transitioning in people's lives. The beautiful thing about small groups is you get to uh, get involved in each other's lives. You get to know each other. You get to hear people's stories. And I can assure you, people's lives are changing. Things are transitioning in people's lives. People are being realigned in a way that's absolutely amazing. And it only comes through this encounter with the word, the new word, the now word, the living word, Jesus Christ. Now, if you're like me, you might be thinking a little bit like, okay, David's got these big plans, these big desires. He wants to see something specific come to pass. And God's like, nope, sorry, not going to be you. I'm like, man, that sounds a little bit harsh. I mean, the Bible says that God's the one who gives you the desires of your heart. So what's up with this? What's up with David? Why didn't he give it to him? And here's the thing. There's something about the transition that we all need to understand. And if you, if you get this, everything else will make sense. I think I was able to do it last night. Hopefully this will still make sense today. If not, just look at me puzzled and pray for me or something. So there's a transition that has to happen. And David explains this transition to Solomon because I think he wanted Solomon to understand, you know what, there's something more going on than just me to you. It's not just about one person to the other person. So he calls Solomon and he says, um, he says, my son, I wanted to build a temple to honor the name of the Lord my God. But the Lord said to me, listen to this, you've killed many men in battles and you've fought. And since you've shed so much blood in my sight, you will not be the one to build a temple to honor my name. David said to da or God said to David, you killed too many people. There's too much bloodshed. There's too much blood on your hands. In other words, you're a man of blood. You're a man of warfare. You're a man of struggle. Now, the thing about that is um, David, actually, the things that he did, he didn't do as just a, a evil, maniacal, maniac despot. The violence that he engaged in, and he did. He did quite a lot of things. Like, just to look at this real quick, this is just 13 verses of one chapter. In case you're, well, I'm not quite following. David defeated and subdued the Philistines. He conquered the land of Moab. This is a fun one. He measured off two groups of people to be executed for one group to be spared. That's pretty violent. He could have done it the other way, I think, but, or not at all. I don't know. David killed 22,000 of them. David became even more famous when he returned from destroying 18,000 Edomites. And that was a good thing. He got famous for that. So David, he was violent. He was a man of bloodshed, a man of warfare. But you know what? In the Bible, the, the narrative that we're given in the Bible is that he did all these things, not, again, not as a criminal, but because he was made the king of Israel and he was given the responsibility of defeating God's enemies, defeating the enemies of the people of God, and, and making sure that the, the territory that God had promised them was conquered and protected. So David's doing what he's supposed to do. The bloodshed that he, the blood that he shed, the violence he engaged in, he did it at basically at God's command. At least the Bible tells us that. The Bible, the narrative says David did all this stuff, and he did it so that he could, uh, the people of Israel could experience peace, so they could experience joy, so they could experience safety, and they could experience everything that God had promised them. So 2 Samuel 8 says David reigned over Israel and did what was right and just. So all that stuff is right and just. And the Bible says again, 2 Samuel chapter 5, that he was made king and confirmed as king over Israel, and blessed, he had his kingdom blessed for the sake of his people Israel. See, the things that he did, he did for Israel, which is another fascinating little lesson. David realized, wow, I've been made the king. I've been elevated. I've been lifted up to this prominent position. And he had this moment of realization where he was like, wow, this actually isn't for me. This is for the sake of the people of Israel. What an awesome place to be in, eh? What a good place to recognize the exaltation of God in our lives, the promotion of God in our lives, the blessing of God in our lives, and to be able to say, wow, God, you bless me so much. Look what you've done in my life. And to have that moment where you're like, this isn't for me. This is for others. 
And then you can really start to partner with God in the good things that he has because he's lifted you up for the sake of others. So David, he's this violent guy. And again, I say, I think it's a little bit, it seems a little bit unfair at surface value anyways, because all the violence he's done, God says, because of that violence, you can't build the temple, but I'm the one that told you to do it. A little bit awkward, right? Now here's the key, I think, to the whole transition between David and Solomon. David's rule was characterized by violent struggle to attain God's promises and defeat his enemies. And that was God-ordained. See, the Bible says David, he served the purpose of God in his generation. He did what God wanted him to do. But once this has happened, once victory has been won, once the enemies are defeated, you need to transition to a new way of operating. You need a new way of living. So the tools that made David successful in his reign, the tools of battle, the tools of bloodshed, the tools of violence, that wasn't going to work when it came to building the purpose of God. When it came time to build the temple of God and build the presence of God, and when it came time to actually realize the dreams of God, the warfare, the battle, the struggle, the bloodshed wasn't the right tool. Those battles had already been fought. Something new needed to happen. See, you need peace. Solomon's reign was one characterized by peace, and peace is what happens when you accept that the war is over. That the struggle has ended. Victory is secured. You don't need to fight and struggle and work and battle. You need a new tool set. You need a new way to live. And I, I propose strongly today that that is the wisdom of God. Another thing that King Solomon was renowned for. So the transition, it's not so much of one from David to Solomon, as much as it's a transition of rule and reign, a transition from warfare and struggle to peace and wisdom. That's the transition that's being talked about. First Chronicles 22.9, God says to David, you'll have a son. He's going to build my temple, and he's going to be a man of peace. And that's the transition. I honestly believe God says, you know what? I love your dreams. I love your plans, your goals, your ambitions. I want that for you too. But you know what? The foundation of what all those things that he's put in your heart is going to be built on, the peace of God. Not struggle. Not violent bloodshed. Jerusalem is the place where the temple got built. You can translate that word city or foundation of peace. It was in the place of peace that David's dream was realized. This is the place of peace. So we really do. You got to drop the tools of religion and struggle. Pick up the tools to build in our lives, to build the purpose of God, to build the dreams of God. The tools that we need are the tools of faith, which I think is peace and I think it's wisdom. So David, he fought to defeat the enemies of God. And that nature, that drive to earn and to acquire in us, it's kind of like the American dream, you know? The the rugged individualism of I'm going to go and make a life for myself. I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm going to conquer and I'm going to be the one. I'm going to be a self-made man. That, That works great sometimes economically, maybe. Not so much in spiritual things. I want to be a God made man. I want to be a man made by Jesus. So Jesus, like David, like David, he, he went out and he fought. He fought battles for us. He was a warrior. And he defeated some people. He defeated some things. He got in a fight. He rolled up his sleeves. He was a man of blood, just like David was. And we got to see this. So Jesus, he got in a fight. He picked fight with the enemies of God, just like David did. He went after the Philistines, went after all these people. Jesus picked a fight with the devil. Colossians 2.15, in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. The devil's defeated. Jesus beat him already. 2,000 years ago on the cross. Sometimes, you know, the Bible says he's walking around roaring like a lion, looking who he can devour. But he's looking for who he can devour. Because you can stand up and you can say, in the victory, in the power, in the authority of what Jesus Christ did, back up and get lost. And that's the task that we've been given. So Jesus, he got like David. He was a man of blood. He fought. He fought the devil. He got in a fight with temptation. Sometimes we think that we're we're in a battle right now. I'm battling temptation. Hebrews 4.15 says, this high priest of ours, he understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testings or temptations we do, but he didn't sin. Jesus fought temptation and won. That battle is actually over. You know, Romans chapter 6 says, you know what? Reckon yourselves dead. 
reckoning yourselves dead to sin. Because Jesus took all of the sin and he took all the evil impulse to do wicked things. He took it all in himself and killed it. He let it be killed by absorbing it into his own body and be put to death. So now we're not in a battle. If you think you're in a battle with temptation, you're, you're, on, your, you're on your way to experience a little bit of a fall. The, the approach to temptation is Jesus Christ overcame you and his overcoming life lives inside of me. And I'm going to draw on the resources of his inner life and on his victory. He faced the same things that I do. And he said no. So by my faith in the victory of Jesus Christ, by my faith in the over, overwhelming, conquering power of his life, I'm going to live out of that life. I'm not going to try and refight this battle. Jesus fought this battle for me, and I'm going to experience his life inside of me, which is victorious and conquering over any type of issue. <laughs> Jesus, like David, he got in fights, and he, he beat the power of the devil and the power of death. Hebrews chapter 2, because God's children are all human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood, because only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he, listen to this, break the power of the devil, who had the power of death. Jesus entered into our death. He took our death. He absorbed it into himself. He said, you know what, all the death and destructions that, that's out there, I'll take you. You come on me. I'm going to absorb all of it because you can't keep me down. We heard about Jesus getting raised up. Wow, that song that we are singing. Jesus raising up, bursting through. Death couldn't keep him. Death couldn't hold him. He picked a fight with death, and he won. He was a warrior. Jesus was a fighter. 1 Corinthians 15, 15 basically tells us because he was a warrior, because he was a fighter, because he, fight, he fought death, he fought the devil, he's given us victory over sin. He's given us victory over death. He's given us victory over the devil. So Jesus, like David, he was also a man of bloodshed. But get this, through the blood that he shed, through the shedding of his own blood, not through the shedding of blood in battle. See, the way Jesus fought was to lay down his life to give his life, not to take life from others. That's how Jesus fought. That's how the Prince of Peace warred. He laid down his life. And by the shedding of his own blood, he acquired for us eternal redemption. Not a kingdom, not a physical kingdom like David did. He's, he's acquired for us eternal redemption. So because of this, because of the man of blood who shed his own blood, the mighty warrior who conquered sin, conquered death, conquered the devil, conquered everything that was standing against us and opposed to us because he's won the victory, because the battle's completed, the war's over. The land has been taken. There is a transition. Jesus is able to give everybody, all of us, the transition that he gave between David and Solomon. We're all able to go from a life of struggle and effort to a life of peace and wisdom. I'm not saying do well, work hard, all that kind of stuff, but I'm saying you're not locked in this violent struggle with God. You're not locked in this, this ethereal spiritual contest to try and make the promises of God manifest in your life. That struggle is over. So there's a transition. There's a perpetual transition that's always happening. In every situation that we're in, we've always got the opportunity to face it in our own strength and try and exert our own energy and power, try and war and battle to make it happen. Or we can stand in the peace of God and say, wow, the mighty warrior of God, Jesus, he laid down his life and he's given me victory. And in his victory, he's given me stuff. See, in the offering teaching, we learned about how David, this transition was going to happen. And David said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave some stuff. I'm going to give some stuff to Solomon. I want to get involved in this. So he did. He leaves him a whole bunch of, of gold and stuff like that. Well, do you know what? Jesus did the same for us. The man of bloodshed, David, gave the man of peace a bunch of stuff to, to, to facilitate and to fund and to, to help with the building of God's dream and God's purpose. Jesus did the same. He really did. The spoils of Jesus' victory in warfare are our inheritance. He stockpiled stuff for us. He said, here you go. Now you can engage. Now you can engage from this place of peace, a peace that I've won for you through violent conquest. You can now build the purpose of God in your life. And you can do it in peace, and you can do it with all the stuff that I stockpiled for you. So in 2 Peter 1 verse 3, it says, By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. Jesus, in his battles, he stockpiled blessings and blessings and blessings. He stockpiled all of that. And out of the resources of what he's done and what he's won for us, we can build. We can build the purpose of God in our lives. So 
what does all this mean? Where do I see Jesus and what does it mean? Well, here's the thing. There is a transition that I think God would do in everybody's life and in every circumstance and in every situation you face in life. And I think this is true, like, on a really big scale, too. There's a transition from a life lived by warfare and struggle to one of peace. Now, you've probably heard Matthew chapter 11, I think it's verse 12, where he says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Well, that, that's Jesus speaking, and he's speaking to some people that are with him right there, and he's saying, from John the Baptist's day until now, right now, right now, the day I'm living with you guys here, the other apostles, disciples, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. The kingdom of heaven is not acquired by violence, and by violence, I don't just mean like fighting with swords and guns and bombs. I mean violence, like violent struggle and effort. I'm going to work myself up into a lather because the louder I scream, the more God might actually answer my prayer. That's, that's violent. You don't need to do that. See, Jesus said, you know, be at, be at peace. He said, it's all good, little children. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. See, the kingdom, it suffers violence, but it's not manifested that way. We're not in a war with God to get him to manifest stuff in our lives. See, I don't think any of us would, would believe, at least I hope most of us wouldn't believe that you're, you're not at peace with God in the sense that you're, you don't know that your sins are forgiven. Because they absolutely are, and we know that. We know that we're at peace with God. He's not holding our sins against us. But sometimes there's a subtle temptation to kind of believe, you know what, well, I'm forgiven, but man, there's this promise in the Bible that I just wish would happen in my life. I've been praying for it. And you, after time, you, there's a little temptation to slip into this mode where I'm engaged in a fight with God. God, I am wrestling you right now like Jacob. I'm wrestling you. I'm in warfare with you. Come on, God, show up. Manifest yourself. Do that thing that I really think you want to do. Well, you know what? We're actually at peace with God. We're not in, in struggle with God in any way. Jacob struggled with, with God. Yeah, that's, that's Old Testament stuff. Everything that he wants to give us, he's given us in his son, freely by grace. So we have peace with God, and that peace manifests in absolutely every aspect of life, not just for salvation, but for how we live our life on a daily basis and how we include God in our life. It's always from a place of peace. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we've been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done. And what he's done for us is not just punched our ticket to heaven, but he's opened access for the Father himself to come and live inside of us, us to live inside of him, and for us to be involved and engaged together in absolutely every aspect of life. Right across the board, you have peace with God in every single way. Because of that, we have peace with others. See, if you want to partner with Jesus and you want to, you know, really be cutting edge with him, you don't need a crazy revelation of something nuts. You need peace. See, the, David realized that he was, made, he was made the king for the benefit and the sake of other people. And the, the purpose of that dream that he had, the, the purpose, it was all about peace. It was founded upon peace. So look at this, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 to 18. Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Isn't that amazing? Because of the warfare that Jesus won, he's, he's brought us peace with other people. You can interpret Jew and Gentile as we are at peace with people who are close to God and people who are far away from God, who don't even know him. There's peace. There's peace between people groups. The body of Jesus Christ took in itself all the hostility and all the division and all the cause for warfare from one people to another, one race to another, one group to another. He took all that in his body. He absolutely annihilated it on the cross, and he broke down the wall of hostility between people. Therefore, there is peace. And he did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. Jesus and his body took down and destroyed all of the, the rules and the regulations that say you get to come in and you have to stay out. All that system of stuff, Jesus said, nope, gone. We're not in a war with people. We're not at war with God. We're at peace with God, and we're at peace with people, all people, everybody. Jesus did this in his own body on the cross. 
Together as one body, Christ reconciled groups to God by means of his death on the cross, and our hostility towards each other was put to death. And he brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles, you people who were far away from God, and he brought peace to the Jews, peace to the people that were near. Now all of us can come to God the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. He's brought us peace. He's established us in peace with each other. And if we're going to partner with God and see his dreams built in our lives, if we're going to partner with him and see ourselves elevated and lifted up, which God does do, by the way, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and in due time, he will exalt you. David's life is beautiful because he's an awesome example of somebody who, who knew he was called to be something great, but he never once lifted a hand to make it happen. In fact, when he could have, I think, you know, at the heart of his honor for King Saul, I think when he cut off the robe, I think he was like, wow, I just took my destiny into my own hands there. I tried to put a little bit of fear into Saul and make him think, uh-oh, there's somebody coming after you. I think that's what, another big part of that story. Beautiful piece about David. Didn't force his way at all. So we need to be at peace with other people because his dream, the tabernacle of David, a place where everybody can experience the presence of God, everybody can experience the glory of God, we can't offer that invitation to people if we're not at peace with them and we're in conflict with them. So this is a little snippet from an interview with uh, Carrie Nyhoff, but a guy called Ed Stetzer, I read this quote and I couldn't not put it up. He says, you can't war at a people and reach a people at the same time. It's pretty good, eh? See, what we're doing, what we want to see God do in our lives, the dream that we have, David had a dream, but we have dreams too. I hope you do. I hope you have a vision for your life and a dream for your life. If you don't, we can discover it together. God made you in a particular way, knit you together in a particular way, put dreams and gifts and callings and a particular bent in your personality. You're made for purpose. So you can discover that, and it's actually not too hard. But if you do have a vision and you have a dream in your heart, it has to include a vision for other people has to include a vision for others. David realized he was made king for the sake of the people of Israel. Others, it has to be. Our vision's incomplete. Our, our dream for our lives is incomplete if it doesn't include bringing people into an experience with Jesus like we have. And that's actually what I think God's doing right now in the world in general. I mean, it says in Acts chapter 15 afterward, so speaking about David, speaking about his dream about creating this beautiful place, he says, I'm going to return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it. Why? So that the rest of humanity can, might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, including the people who are really far away. So he says he's going to, he's going to restore the broken down, down walls of David's original dream, that people everywhere of every color, race, creed might be able to experience his presence and glory. And if we're going to be partners with him in this project, we're going to have to see through the finished work of the cross that we are at peace with people. He's done that for us. See, the broken down tent, it's the revelation of God's goodness and grace that's been trampled all over. And he's restoring that again in our days. He's restoring again his heart to reveal to people, you know what, I want to be as close to you as you'll let me. And it's because of the blood of Jesus, you can come as close as you want. See, Moses, Moses brought the law, and the, the, the characteristic, the quality, if you will, of Moses' life was, come out, get out. We're getting out of Egypt. Get away from this evil stuff. And then Jesus shows up. John tells us he comes bringing grace and truth, and Jesus isn't saying, hey, get out. He's saying, come, come, come to me, come to me. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not going to experience struggle and difficulty in life. Like, oh my goodness, we really, really are. It doesn't mean that we have to condone everything that people do or say or even believe. It doesn't mean that we have to accept and just be like, ah, turn a blind eye to some of the blatant evils that we see. We don't have to do that at all. But what we do have to recognize is that any type of battle that we're in right now, it's one from victory, not for, for victory. And it's not against people. It's against what holds people in bondage. So we're fighting against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places, not people. There's this really uh, amazing picture, actually, now that I think about it. And one of, I don't know if you ever read anything by Rick Joyner, but I'm not saying anything yay or nay for the rest of the book, but I'm saying there's this one portion where he's, he's in this vision and he sees, um, he sees these human beings. And this is kind of weird, but they're being ridden by demons. And he's got these arrows that are arrows of truth, 
representing he wants to speak truth to people to see them set free. So the people are being influenced by the demons, and he's shooting arrows, and he's shooting arrows at the people. And all that's doing is agitating them, making them really angry, getting them really upset, and actually coming more into agreement with the thing that was riding them than with the purpose of God. And in this little book, in the story of the book, he's like, wow, when I started shooting the arrows at the demons, when I started realizing my fight wasn't against the people, but the evil influence in them, because the Bible says that it's the God of this world who's blinded the minds of unbelievers. He's the one that our fight's with. But even then, our fight is not from, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm barely holding on. Our fight is from heavenly places down. Ours is from a place of victory down. So we get to fight from peace. But secondly, real quick, we need to manifest the wisdom of God. We really do. God gave Solomon very great wisdom and understanding and knowledge as vast as the sands of the seashore. 1 Kings 4. David's reign was characterized by wisdom, the wise administration of everything that the warrior king had stockpiled for him. And seriously, that's where, that's where we are at. That's what the world is looking for. Not a church that's militant and at war with, with culture. Not an impoverished church. Not an identityless church that has no influence. But a church that knows who it is. A church that knows what it has. And through the wisdom of peace, knows how to administrate the blessings that it's been given. Knows how to administrate the inheritance stockpiled for it from its man of blood, Jesus. And this was always God's plan. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. God's purpose in all this is to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all unseen rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was God's eternal plan. From a place of peace to manifest the wisdom of God in our homes, at our jobs, in our personal lives, with our money, with our resources, to manifest in every way and to everyone the wisdom of God lived out from a place of peace. That's God's eternal purpose. And you know what? We have a calling. We have a destiny, something that I don't think we've really even come to terms with. But it's to manifest the wisdom of God to the world around us, and it's to manifest the wisdom of God to spiritual beings. A calling and a purpose that we have that exists and transcends even this life. The eternal purpose of God. We are forever going to be manifesting and displaying the unfathomable riches of who God is and the wisdom that he has. We are going to be the ones, the church, displaying the wisdom of God forever and ever. To every host, the vastness of all the spiritual creations and everyone else forever and ever. This is the purpose of God. To make known the wisdom of God. And we can do it. We really can. See, when Solomon was made king, it says that he had peace with all of his enemies and all the surrounding areas. He manifested the wisdom of God, and through the peace and the wisdom that Solomon displayed, the nations around Israel were able to look and see what can happen to a nation whose God is the Lord. Sounds like the church. We live in the peace that he supplied for us. We live in the wisdom of God, and we get to manifest not what a, you know, a natural nation looks like, but we get to manifest to the people around us what a holy nation looks like what a community of God looks like. We get to manifest what the person of Jesus Christ looks like through us. That's our purpose. That's our destiny. That's our call. And it all comes from peace. And it comes in wisdom. So there's a, there's a transition that God always offers us, a, con a, a continual now moment. And how we make this, where this transition happens, it happens at the place of death. David and Solomon, this transition, David started it, but it was completed when he died. The transition was complete after David was gone. And you know where our transition happens? The place of death. Our warrior king, he won battles for us, and he won them by dying. So when we embrace the victory of what he's done, when we embrace his death, when we bring the reality of the death of Jesus into every single life circumstance and situations. See, I think that's what it means when it says carry your cross. I mean, you can't kill yourself, right? You can't kill yourself through crucifixion. I mean, you can nail one hand in, but you can't get the other because you're stuck, right? Can't do it. I think carrying your cross means walk every day with the weight of your cross. Let the weight of it influence you. And that's not an invitation to self-death. That's an invitation to realize his cross was my cross. Where he died, I died. And every day I get to live under the influence and the weight. It's, wearing, it's, it's weighing down on me. Not in a bad way, but in a liberating way. Every day the influence of the cross, it affects me. 
because I died there with him. And therefore, in every single circumstance I find myself in, I get to go from worry and struggle and violent effort to the victory won for me at the cross. So we don't need to uh, have the tool set of struggle and violence. We get to manifest the wisdom of God. You know what James said, James chapter 1? 5 to 7, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, if we need wisdom, let him ask. Ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach. Gives to all. He'll give wisdom to anybody who will ask for it. Because ultimately, even if you don't know him, but you ask for wisdom, he's going to give you wisdom, and that wisdom is going to lead you to him. He gives wisdom to all, and he gives it liberally, not just a little bit, but he pours out a whole whack load on you. It's like, oh, I'm not just going to give you a little cup. I'm going to throw a whole bucket at you. And he does it without finding fault. He does it without reproach. It's not like, ah, well, I'll, I'll bless you. I'll give you some wisdom. But you might use that wisdom in a carnal way to bless yourself or something. So no, not today. He doesn't do that. He's not looking for you. He's not looking for the faults. He's not looking for anything like that. He's just, here you go. Here's wisdom. But you know what? The only key is to believe. Just believe. Let him ask in faith, not doubting. He who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. And even then, he's not saying, believe in me or I'm not going to do it. If you don't believe in me, you can't do it. You can't manifest wisdom when you're all over the place, being driven all over. God's not withholding. And you know what? The wisdom that he gives, James again, James must have been a wise fellow. But the wisdom from above is, first of all, pure, and it's also peace-loving. The wisdom God gives us to build his purpose in our lives, it's, it's full of peace. It's gentle. It's willing to yield. The wisdom of God isn't to dig your heels in and be like, nope. The wisdom of God is sometimes, I'm not going to try and force this. The wisdom of God is I'm, I'm going to yield to others. Even if you're convinced you're right. Sometimes wisdom leads you to do things that might not be in your mind right. It shows no favoritism, and those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, other translations I like better. It says, harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. The, the, the harvest of our dreams, the harvest of the things that we want, the harvest of the things we've sown for, that we're believing for. Like, I'm believing for some big stuff. I don't know about you guys. I've got personal dreams. i got dreams to see things happen in the church, in the region, in the world. i I got dreams to see a church that so rocks and shakes Western culture that it just flips it upside down. And it can be said like it was said of the apostles, those people who turn the world upside down, they've come here. I've got some big dreams. I want to see some stuff happen. But you know the harvest of righteousness, the harvest of that dream? The seeds for that harvest are sown in peace by those who make peace. So there's a transition. It's a now moment transition. It's for every situation and every opportunity in life. I can go from struggle to peace. I can go from forcing my way and not understanding how to make this happen to the wisdom of God. And it all happens by bringing the cross into the situation. Amen. All right. Let's Well, uh, let's all stand together. I hope you've had a good time today in God's house. I really have. I love when you come to church and lo and behold, there's the Lord. He came with me. Well, like I said, there's, a, there's always a now moment. There's always, a, there's always a now with God. The timing of God is, I believe, it really is always right now. So you don't have to wait. If there's something going on in your life, if there's a, you know, maybe you've heard this, this sermon today and you're like, you know what, I, I want to know that Jesus. I want to have Jesus be the Prince of Peace in my life. Maybe you've never done that before. Maybe you've never accepted Jesus before. Maybe you've never um, actually on purpose said, Jesus, come into my life and give me peace. If that's you and you're here today and you've never done that before, I really do want to give you a chance. And all I'm going to ask you to do is at the count of three, just to raise your hand. If everybody could bow your heads and close your eyes, nobody's going to be looking around. This is a moment between you and Jesus. So at the count of three, I'll invite you, just put up your hand and we'll pray together. All of us out loud. You want to accept Jesus. You want the peace of God in your heart. 
and this would be the first time. At the count of three, ready? One, two, three. see any hands but everyone else you know what the prince of peace he's here the prince of peace king of kings the lord of lords god almighty you know what he said he said it's the god of peace who's going to crush satan under your feet he didn't say it's the god of warfare he didn't say it's the lord of heaven's armies the lord of hosts he said it's the god of peace who's going to crush satan under your feet under your feet Maybe you got something going on. Maybe you need some peace. Maybe you feel like you're in a struggle. You're in a warfare right now. I'm telling you, you know what's going to send the devil fleeing? The name of Jesus on your lips and the peace of God in your heart. So, Father, I pray for peace. I pray for the manifestation of the peace of God in everybody's hearts and lives. May the shalom of God enter our lives, every circumstance, every situation. We thank you, mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. You're so here. And we bless you and we honor you. Thank you for the peace of God that that helps us in our decision-making, the wisdom of God that helps us to make good, wise decisions, that helps us to manifest your glory, your grace, and your presence in our lives. We bless you. We thank you. We look forward to harvest in our lives. People are going to come to know Jesus through us, through people in this room. We're going to manifest the wisdom of God. We're going to engage the eternal purpose of God. And the wisdom of God will be demonstrated through your life to principalities, to spiritual powers and to people. Through us, Father, through us, your people. Show the world, show the nation, show the world, show our neighbors what our God can do through your peace and your wisdom. We ask for it, we do. Baptize us in wisdom. Jesus Christ has become for us from God wisdom. Flood our hearts with the wisdom of God, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.